Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H brighton.org. It's Kyle, and good morning, church. I'm excited to be with you. I've got good news and sad news a little bit. Um, that uh, if you are familiar with our church planting network, uh, we're called City on a Hill. There's four congregations. And the good news is that my family and I get a special one-month uh, sabbatical vacation. Uh, after you plant, thank you, yeah, I heard a whoop. Um, after you plant uh, a church in our network, after the third year mark, uh, the network sort of gives us uh, a month to just kind of rest and catch our breath and hang out with our kids and enjoy our marriage. So we're going to go visit family and we're going to hit up the beach and well, a warmer beach than, you know, Massachusetts. Uh, but this will be our, uh, we've been sharing this with our leaders and our members and then telling you guys if you're a guest on Sunday. Um, but we will have pastors and we'll have guest preachers and we've got sort of a way to care for our church and our members while we're gone. So that's the sad news because I'm going to miss you, but I will be back. I'm not going looking for another job. This is my home. You guys are my people, uh, but we'll be gone for five weeks. We'll come back at January the 18th. I know a lot of you already know this, but if you're a guest today, you're like, are you guys still having church? Absolutely. Are you guys still going to gather here? Absolutely. This church doesn't run by me. There's lots of leaders and volunteers that help make this thing a thing. <laughs> so uh, guys, thank you so much. Just a personal note, letting me go on vacation and caring for my family in that way. Uh, we're not burnt out. There's not been a moral failure. This is just a temporary, <sighs> after the three hard years of planning a church, which many of you know, because many of you helped start this church. Um, with that said, also, we just want to shout out to my wife, Emily. Uh, thank you so much for helping us lead worship this morning, caring for our church. Uh, she hosted our member Christmas party yesterday, helping out with churchwide meal and sweetheart. Just thank you a ton. We actually met this way, by the way, like doing a little song and worship stuff when we were uh, in college together. It was sweet to be with you this morning. You did a great job. Okay, enough of that because you don't want to hear our romance this morning. Um, but we're in uh, a journey, if you're a guest with us, uh, we've been in a journey, a teaching series in the book of Genesis. And so what we do at our church is we like to go book by book, verse by verse, to see what God's word would have for us. And today we've journeyed all the way through to chapter 10 and 11. And so we're talking about the table and the tower. Okay, it's like a pretty cool kind of name of things. There's a table which has a bunch of names. And so we're going to look at a genealogy today. And if you are familiar with the Bible, this is like the part that you often skip, right? Can we just all be honest? Do you like read the genealogies and pronounce the names and draw the family tree? And you know, do you, does anybody like, like the genealogies? You like them? You would, Jordan, you would. She's a little Bible scholar. She would like them. Um, but are you like me? Do you just skip the genealogies and kind of move on. I, I can't pronounce half them half the time. I have to look it up. It's difficult. But we're going to look at this because it's really important us to see two things today. Things about the table, uh, which is the, the list of names of genealogies, and the tower. And there's a lot I want you to see in these passages. Uh, the main things I want us to see today are, are two big things. We're going to see how uh, ethnicity and diversity is a wonderful, wonderful gift that God has given to creation. And we're also going to see today is that how are we building our life? Is it for God's glory or is it for our own? Those are the two big ideals we want to look at today. So with that said, let's look at the table and the tower. And let's start here in verse uh, one here. Verse one of chapter 10. So you got to back up a little bit. Um, verse one, chapter 10 says this. These are the generations of the son of Noah. Because remember, we just finished up our three-week series on Noah, his life, the flood, the ark, the covenant that God made with him. And so we're just seeing that God is continuing sort of this new creation moment. After the flood, things were destroyed. God is reinstituting life on earth. He's talking about what's happening next. So these are the generations of Noah. And so it comes from his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And those are the sons that were born to them after the flood. And then what happens is four lengthy paragraphs unpacking all of the kids that these three men have 
had. So there's a paragraph for Shem. There's two paragraphs for Ham and his son Canaan. So there's a paragraph for Ham, one for Canaan, and then a whole paragraph for Japheth. If you look through all of those, there's about 70 names that are listed there and nine people groups. And what this is going to show us in a moment that that number 70, uh, sort of in Hebrew culture, is this number of perfection or completion. We see seven a lot in the scriptures, but this number 70 is this sort of full recording of all the tribes and nations that were to fill the earth at that time. So we're seeing that God is continuing what he started with Adam and Eve. Remember what God told Adam and Eve? What was the first command? It was to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. So what is God doing? He's just continuing his promises in in his command. Even when Adam and Eve sinned, and Noah sinned, and their kids sinned. God is always faithful to his promises. And guys, that's what we can see here. God's going to continue his work in your life and in the lives around us, no matter what you do. If you are faithless, God is faithful. And so we're seeing what God is doing, continuing this all the way through Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So I want to give you a couple quick things today. And every time, by the way, if you hear the word quick, it just means the opposite. Uh, It'll probably take a little bit. But I wanted you to really see why are genealogies so important? Why are they important? And so I want to lay out just a few of these things for us because genealogies happen so commonly in the Bible. In fact, if you've been joining our church for a little while, this is the fourth genealogy you've seen in 11 chapters. It's like they like to have these little family moments where they kind of pull out the picture book. This is my daughter and the stepson and the great-grandson and the great-great. They just like to do that all the time in Hebrew cultures, just walk through the family tree. This is the fourth one that we've seen. So why is this so important? First thing why genealogy is important is because I think they are tracking God's faithfulness. The author of this book is Moses, and he is recounting this history that's been shared orally throughout the Hebrew tradition. And what I think is happening is that they're tracking God's faithfulness of what God started again with Adam and Eve. Again, if you remember in chapter nine, what did Noah, uh, what did God say to Noah? God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to his sons, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. This genealogy is a record of God's faithfulness. What he promised, he will fulfill. Whatever God says to you and I, Christian, in the Bible, God is faithful to fulfill all of it. If it's a promise about loving you or protecting you, it's true. He'll do it. If it's providing for you, he'll do it. If it's, I'll never leave you, never forsake you, he'll do it. If he's promising you something, he's faithful to do it. And genealogies are proof to us that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. Uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about Noah's life and story, and we learned that Noah uh, kept giving us sort of journal entries about on the fifth day of the flood, this happened, and on the 70th day, this happened, and on the 150th day, this happened. And he kept tracking, and we asked the question, why? Why is he tracking all these days and what's happening? And we're learning that journaling increases our joy. When we track what God's doing in our life, it helps us to pick our head up off of our circumstances and onto what God's doing. And so what we're learning that genealogies are the same thing. People are tracking what's happening in history and they're watching how God is interacting with their cousin or their aunt or their neighbor or their friend and they're keeping record of God's faithfulness. And just like with Noah, we're asking you today, how are you keeping track of God's faithfulness? Guys, one of the easiest things that Christians struggle with and the easiest thing we forget is, is God still with me? Is God active? Is God really still doing work in my life? And as Christians, if we begin journaling and taking note of what God's doing, we mark down our prayers and we're watching him answer. We cross off ones when he's answered. It helps you remember that God's faithful. And journaling that way increases your joy. So that's why genealogy is important. It's tracking God's faithfulness help increase your joy so you can see that God is at work in your life. Second thing that genealogies help us with is that the people during this time, they're searching for the serpent crusher. Now you might be like, what does that even mean, serpent crusher? Is that like a wrestling move, Aaron, that you watch in WWE when you're a kid? I was obsessed with wrestling when I was a kid. At all the video games, I, you don't even know what outfits I wore. There's pictures I tried to burn, you know, from a childhood with my little, you know, whatever. Um, 
All that to say, they were, they were searching for the serpent crusher. Um, because if you remember, God gave a promise to Adam and Eve that someone would come one day and defeat evil and sin and darkness. And here's how that promise was articulated in Genesis 3. God said, I would put enmity between you, serpent, Satan, and the woman, and between her offspring and your offspring. God said to the serpent, yeah, you're going to strike at his heel, but the serpent crusher is going to indeed crush your head. And so what happened in that moment was everyone began to look through Eve's and Adam's genealogy. And they were tracking, okay, is Adam and Eve's son, Cain and Abel, are they going to be the serpent crusher that comes and defeats Satan, sin, and death? Okay, it wasn't them. They passed away and they were imperfect. So what about Lamech? And what about Noah? What about Ham and Shem and Japheth? They're trying to track to see where the serpent crusher is. So it's pretty cool that they're sort of doing that. Uh, I, I like, uh, there's this movie as a kid I watched called Harriet the Spy. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? A couple people? Yeah, yeah, you would. Yeah, right. You and I would, right? Harriet the Spy, and she loved like kind of navigating clues. She had this little notebook, and I had one in my back pocket too. It was a red one. It, you don't care about the color, but just helping you remember. Um, and she would sort of track clues to try to figure out, to sort of solve some sort of case. And that's what happening. Genealogies are sort of like clues as they're trying to point towards who's the serpent crusher? Who's the offspring going to be? And so they're waiting and they're hoping that God will fulfill his promise. And guys, isn't that what Advent really is? It's waiting and seeing. And guys, every year so far, we've had Christmas. We've had December 25th, and there's this anticipation for that morning where you spend time with friends or family or loved ones, and you open up gifts, and you remember the goodness that God gave his son as the ultimate present. And as we give presents to each other, we're reminded that God has given us his best present. He gave us his son to live in our place, to die on the cross, to take away our sin, and to rise again. And so we're learning in this genealogy that's even pointing towards Christmas, this waiting, this who's the serpent crusher, who's the offspring. And then finally, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see a genealogy. It starts all the way from Adam. It goes through these names that we see today, and it ends with who? Jesus, the serpent crusher. Finally, the case is closed. Harry the spy part five is over. She's found, she put her notebook away, and the serpent crusher is here. Every genealogy you'll ever see in the Bible, that's what they're doing They're hunting for the serpent crusher and he's finally come. Again, it's a reminder of us that God is faithful to fulfill his promise. Whatever promise he's given in scripture is a promise for you. He will fulfill it on and the life to come. Number three, what's also important about genealogies is that shows us that these people are actually real and they're actual and they're historical people. As I noted to you, there's four paragraphs showing the family line, and there's over 70 names and nine people groups. And when an author does that, it's showing you that these stories in the Bible are not fable. They're not fiction. They're real stories. And so you might have grown up like I did, thinking the Bible was just sort of maybe metaphorical, or maybe it was just uh, kind of a story that has one moral point at the very end. It's kind of like a fable in that way. But when you see in the Bible, there's names, there's dates, there's places, there's events. The Bible's being written actually like historical history, like not metaphor, not fable, but real. And when an author takes his time going through names, people, and places, and dates, he's communicating, this is real. This is true. These things exist. And that's what I love is that the Bible is basically begging humanity to say, test me. Look at my people. Look at the dates. Look at the places. What I love about the Bible and what helped me become a Christian when I was 20 is it's not just a bunch of like random faith statements and random beliefs. Like it's calculated. It gives you archaeology, gives you geography, dates when kings had events. And then you can go back in human history and you can match them up. Oh yeah, that date actually matches up. Yeah, that king was ruling and reigning. Yeah, that was a people group or that was a tribe or that was a nation. Oh, that event really did happen. And there's proof that's what I love about the Bible. It's not just this made-up book. It's, it's real and actual. In fact, I was, I was researching this this past weekend. Uh, there's a passage in Isaiah 20 that references a king called Sargon. Okay, Kind of just a cool fact. 
And for like decades, people thought Sargon was never even a king. This story never even happened. You probably should not think the Bible's reliable. Who's Sargon? Well, recently there was an excavation, there's discovery, and boom, there's a bunch of information about Sargon being a king and who took him over and what happened. They found his, um, gotta hear my notes, sorry. Uh, they found uh, his palace discovered in Iraq. Uh, the very event that was mentioned in Isaiah 20, his capture in Ashad, uh, in the palace walls, all of that was found like in right there. Every time you see genealogies, every time you see names like this, you see it in the Bible, it's going to match up with human history time and time and time again. From both secular scientists and archaeologists to Christian ones, they'll say, this is not true. We haven't found those people. Just give it five decades. All of a sudden, there's going to be excavation and bam, there's information, there's writing on walls, and we're going to find some history. I love it. The Bible can be tested. It can be proved. It can be examined. It can be unpacked, flipped over, turned around. All of that. The Bible is begging you to believe it's real, it's true, it's accurate. And if all of those things line up, all of those things line up, then maybe it's true that Jesus really is God. He really did die. He really did rise so you could have a relationship with him. Genealogies point us to incredible things. Number four, genealogies point us to the fact that families are hard, but God can heal. Guys, what I love about genealogies is that God's not like holding back about the hard things that go on in people's lives. By the way, if you're going to make up the Bible and you want to make a bunch of people believe in it, you wouldn't make it as honest, real, and raw as the Bible is. Like the people tell on themselves, they screw things up, they're terrible leaders, they're awful people, and just like me, and what I love about this is that genealogists are just raw and real. And it shows that families are incredibly hard and that they're challenging. But yet in every genealogy, in every hard family story, God points somehow to that very family's redemption. In fact, if you remember Ham, we got to go back a little bit to Genesis 9. Remember that moment where Noah got drunk because he's all worn out from the flood scene he builds a vineyard. He ends up in this tent. He's naked. And Ham, his son, goes in in verse 22, and something happens. It said that he saw his father's nakedness, and culturally that can mean lots of different things. It could be something sexually happened. could be something physical happened. He could have pranked his dad. Either way, it was a terrible scene. We have no idea. Noah wakes up. He realized that something happened that was awful, and he sort of says these like curse-like things to him. Not that he actually cast a curse, like magical or something, but he sort of wished his worse on him. And so Ham, we're learning, is this sort of rebellious son, and through his line actually comes a continued rebellion that was hard for the people of Israel. You're going to notice in a moment that there's the Jebusites. I think I have it on here. Maybe I don't. Yeah, there we go. Thank you. You're going to learn from Ham's family is the father of Canaan. And there was the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Hivites, sorry guys, Hivites. I had like a stall in my brain there for a moment. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you're a Christian and you've read the Old Testament, you realize that some of these people groups were the hardest groups that that harmed the Israelite people and provided uh, the murdering of their wives and their children and their destruction. And that was all through Ham's line. Constant over and over again. And Ham really didn't sort of repent from what happened. And he sort of trained his kids and his kids' kids and his kids' kids trained his kids' kids. And they sort of left this life of rebellion. And we're learning that families are hard. But even in the midst of this, if you keep the line going, you get to Joshua chapter two, someone from Ham's line, a Canaanite woman, Rahab, a prostitute, interesting that something sexual happened with Ham. It kind of follows the family line. It gets to Rahab. And what does God do with this woman? He brings her these eyes. She hears these words about this faithful God. She turns, gives her life to God, and God redeems her. And we have this precious story showing us how hard families are, what Ham has done, what happens in his family line, but God does not leave us in our sin. Leave us in the destruction that we have might have brought to our families or our families have done to us. Guys, this has beautiful implications. That means, and this is a hard moment, but if you were hurt as a child, if you were abused or neglected or taken advantage of or 
you weren't loved by a guardian properly or you were mistreated by a family member because of the way you spoke or the way you act or the way you lived and you feel unloved and uncared for and not seen. God sees your line. He sees you. He sees what you've gone through, who you are, what you struggle with when no one sees. He sees the depression, sees the anxiety, the sins that have happened to you and the sins you do. And God in his love doesn't leave you there. Every time we see a genealogy, we see that family hard and hard things happen, but God didn't give up on that line. Give up on Ham, didn't give up on his family. And we see a redemption story with Rahab in Joshua chapter two. And we see for sure in James chapter two that she really did place her faith in God. Families are indeed hard, but God can heal. And last thing, number five, we see that cultural and ethnic diversity is good. It's actually God ordained. Now we won't take a moment to unpack all of what I mean by culture because what we do believe as Christians is hard, but it's true. We do as Christians do believe that there is only really one God. Yes, there are other religions that have other gods and we don't want to be unkind or hateful towards them, but we do believe truthfully that there is one God and we believe that Jesus is God, that he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross to take away our sin so that we could have a place with him. We genuinely believe those things. And so I don't want to say that like, you know, we're just going to believe everything as a church and we'll take every worldview. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that cultural practices and language and clothing and how they may celebrate different holidays or traditions as a family, these things are God-ordained ethnicity and skin tone and language and culture, all of that is God-ordained. That's what we see in this genealogy here. Guys, after the flood, God is sort of restarting the population. And he's doing it through Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In fact, 9.19 says that these were the sons, Jam, uh, Jam, (laughs) Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And from these people, the whole earth was dispersed. Now, Tony Evans is one of my favorite pastors, and he's got this great study he did on their names. But do you realize there was something in the DNA of these three men? The name Ham actually means dark or dark black. Japheth actually means bright or fair-skinned. And Shem means dusk or sort of this caramel brown-like skin. Do you realize that in the fabric and DNA of these men, are the ethnicities that we would see in our life and culture in the world today. It's God-ordained. It's beautiful. So what that means for all of us is that not one skin color, not one race or ethnicity or culture is better than the other. All are worthy of dignity and honor and of protection and of care. And we're seeing that diversity was not any part of a curse. It was part of God's plan so we could better see his glory throughout humanity and how this culture may celebrate one thing that shows an angle of God's love or care and how this tradition may have an angle that we see God's holiness or his honor or respect. We see different things from different cultures and baked into the fabric of humanity was this DNA set in Shem. I think I said it right. Shem, Ham. I want to say, like, I don't know what's happening with my words today. Sorry, guys. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Baked in are these beautiful cultural ethnic things in them. And then throughout the dispersion on the earth, we see something beautiful happen. In the genetic code was every skin tone on the planet. What this means for us, guys, is that has incredible ramifications for how we should treat, a lot of implications for how we should treat and love one another. And so, Part of what we need to think through as Christians is how do we think not my culture, how I grew up, is the right way. How I think about time and how I think about relationships and how I think about others, my way is the right way. And if I can just get in a group of majority like me, then this would be the right path. Because as a church, we seek to be multi-ethnic, but also multicultural. We've got a long way to go for those Multi-ethnic can just be like, we all look different, but if we all look different and practice something that may just be one ethnicity's preference, is that really thinking about the other cultures that are maybe in the room? 
And so we might have to think about what song choice looks like for us as a church, what community groups look like for us as a church, what's it look like for us to care for our friends and neighbors, what mission looks like as a church, how we hire uh, folks at our church, how do we platform voices and make sure we have uh, uh, equal voices around the table, both men and women, but also different ethnic and cultural backgrounds that all worship and trust in Jesus. There's lots of ramifications and importance here. And guys, through this line, I'm not going to go through all of it right now. I got a lot of notes, but I think we just skipped this part. Um, but I, I do want you to know just at least from like Japheth's line, you can see uh, like Greek and Europe. Uh, Gomer is actually like, shows us like the Welsh background, Scandinavia, Rhodes, Cyprus, Greece, everything along the Mediterranean coast. That's like Japheth's, Japheth's people is on the Mediterranean coast. Ham is like Africa and Assyria. Uh, you see from his line, he's got a son named Egypt. That's Egypt, pretty obvious. Cush is actually Ethiopia. Put is Libya. Uh, Canaan represents uh, sort of all the African and Assyrian uh, countries, but also showing you right around the Middle East is where that's at. And Shem is doing the same thing. We see from Shem, there's a line of Israel and Iran and Yemen and people as far east as even India. We're seeing all these collection of names and their stories shows something beautiful about diversity. Multitude of nations, languages and cultures and skin tones, all good. How do we know that's the case? What does Revelation 7, 9 teach us? That for Christians, when we go to heaven, every tribe and nation and tongue in their own language, in their own tradition, are gonna be worshiping God all together. It's not gonna be me and my white brothers and sisters standing up and saying, I'll lead you today in worship. No, there's an equal love and worship of God around the throne where each culture is humbly coming before God saying, you are our king and not our own practices. But in heaven, we're going to look over and see your brothers and sisters in Christ intermixed with all of us, all praising God, every tribe, nation, and tongue. This is beautiful. My friends, is your life, if that's where we're going, is your life here and now look like that? I'm not saying that you need to marry someone that looks like this or looks like that just so that you can get this picture. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying, is your life built? The table of nations, is your dinner table look like the table of nations in Genesis 10? Your friendships, your relationships, possibly foster care or adoption, who your best friends are, who you're connected with at our church, does the table of nations look like your dinner table? Or are you only investing in those who look like you, speak like you, view time like you, vote like you? Because how do we honor different cultures, different ethnicities, different backgrounds? We see it's a good thing. If heaven's going to look like that, what does it look like for us to prepare our hearts on earth? So then that table of nations closed with saying, these are the clans of the according to their genealogies and their nations. From these, the nations spread abroad on earth after the flood. Three quick takeaways, we'll move to chapter 11. Number one, takeaway, all people have value. All people have value, all of them. The question is, do you treat them like that? Do you treat someone that believes differently, votes differently, marries differently? Do you value them? You don't have to agree with everything someone believes or does but do you treat them with dignity and value? Do you have honest but loving dialogue? Do they feel safe and known and loved even in the midst of maybe a belief disagreement? That's, that's how Christians are called to live because that's how God lived with us. God called out my sin and showed me how my sin was dishonoring to him, but he loved me in the midst of it and forgave me and is showing me the path that he designed me to live on for my good, not to limit me, but for my good. All people have value. Number two, ethnicity and culture, they matter. They matter. So how as a church can we love, care for those who walk in the doors of our church? And then when we leave the doors, how do we care for our friends and neighbors? And then last, I love this. All people, this is hard, but you hear, hear me out. All people are, we, we do sin. We do fall short. God's perfect standard. I am like the chief of sin. All sinners, but we can all receive grace, forgiveness, and to walk a new way. And that's what we see in genealogies. Ham, the kids, all the way down. And then what do we see? We see Rahab. 
There's grace that God extends to the family, extends to individuals. All of us are sinners, but we can all receive forgiveness and grace through Jesus. And maybe that's what your heart needs today. It's not hearing that you need to do better, try harder, clean yourself up. No, no, no. God came to love you as you are, die for who you are, and then bring you into his family and care for who you are right now. Guys, this is the good news of the gospel that we see in the genealogies. You guys okay with that? Okay. Uh, Chapter 11. All right, here's the big idea here is, are you building your life for God's glory or yours? You're building your life around God's glory or yours. By the way, um, we've seen this in Hollywood, by the way, like all of my childhood, like Disney stars are a hot mess. You know, I'm watching, you know, X, Y, and Z person. I'm like, oh, they're a great role model. And now I'm like, ooh, it's a little, it's a little rough, right? Uh, and my goal is not to hate on them or speak unkind, but you can tell that when you're pursuing maybe fame or glory, you're willing to compromise and you're, you're, you've got lots of feedback towards you and you're being told you got to dress like this and look like this. And you're hearing lots of critique all the time. It's going to end up hurting you and harming you. You can maybe see this in your own life. And when you pursue sort of glory and fame or status or importance, if you pursue your own glory, you end up hurting yourself. So we are built to glorify someone, to make much of someone, but as people, it can't be us. It's got to be someone else. And when we make much of Jesus, Jesus does a much with our life. And when we make him the point, then he brings goodness to us. And we order our life around him and he works in our life and our heart actually for our good. So here's what happens in chapter 11. It says, now... This is sort of before all the dispersion, by the way. So sort of chapter 10 is showing you where things are going to go. Because remember, Moses is writing it like over here. And so he like already is like living this out. It's not like prophecy, right? Like he's like already on this side of where the genealogy is going. So he's like writing in chapter 10, like, hey guys, this is where it's all heading. And then like chapter 11 picks up right after like chapter nine. You guys kind of with me on that? If not, just whatever, you get it. Okay, (laughs) so now... Um, before it kind of stretches out, we've still got, you know, people on the earth that are connected with these family lines. It says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. So there was not the dispersion quite yet. Verse two, and as many people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. By the way, just to note, every time you see that there's like a traveling from the east or they're moving east, That language is true and historical, but it's also figurative. If you remember that Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden to the east, if you remember when we were uh, walking through Cain and Abel, Cain went further east. And so it's this picture that there's not like this specific physical place that God is within the world and the further you are away from space, the further you are from him. But symbolically, every time we see people moving east, it's communicating to us that they're moving further and further from the ways of God. Make sense? And that's what we're seeing here. People migrated from the east and they plain, uh, they, they land in this one place. They start settling together. And verse three says, they said to one another, come, let us make some bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and they had some mortar, uh, mortar as well. So they're building uh, this giant temple, this giant tower. And then verse four, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city. Come, let's build a tower to the tops of heaven. Now, just a quick question. Is it wrong to build a city? Nope. Is it wrong to build a tower? Nope. Is there anything wrong with building those two things? No. In fact, cities are, can be really, really good things. Cities aren't bad in of themselves. Cities are actually centers for great things like education and medicine and resources for us and anyone. In fact, they're a really good like refuge for the marginalized. There's so many resources and things in the city. So cities aren't bad in of themselves, but we also know that cities also can be a place of abuse and power gone awry. Cities can also be a place that you find your worth and identity. But here's the problem. If you come to a city like Boston without an identity, without knowing who you are and what your worth is, the city's just going to consume you and then remake you in its own image. As much as I love Boston, you don't want to be burnt out and wore out all the time. 
with this fast-paced education and job and climbing ladders and the transients and just landlords kind of spitting you in, taking you out. You know, whatever happens with your rent doesn't matter. They're just painting over light fixtures and you're like, I don't even know why you did that. Just change, you know, maybe that's my place. Um, and you're just like, what's happening? Like, there's just maybe not a care. So cities aren't necessarily bad of themselves, but if you come here looking to, I'm going to get a PhD or I'm going to get a master's, I'm going to climb the ladder and I'm going to build, a, build an image for myself, it'll build the wrong thing. City will take you in, make you its own image only to harm you. So there's not wrong to build a city or a tower, but it's the motive that matters. The motive. And that's what's so interesting about this section is it says, let's build a city, not bad. Let's build a tower, not bad. But the motive is what's key. It says, let us make a name for ourselves. It shows you that that's why they wanted to build a city. That's why they wanted to build a tower to be the highest structure and then so that everyone would look at these people and say, wow, look how great you are. Now, let's just be honest for a moment. Whether you think so or not, or whether you like it or not, each of us are building a city or a tower to our own name. All of us. Some of us do it in the secrecy of our heart with morality. And we think, I want to build myself to be the best or the most good person I want to be reasonable, I want to be logical, I want to make wise decisions, and I want to be known as that. So I'm going to live my way, live my life a certain way. Some of us, we want to build our identity off of family. So it's really important for me to marry right and have the kids according to this timeline. I got to get my finances together. I may need to foster or adopt because I need to be seen as good or loving or caring about the nations. And so I'm going to build my life in a certain way so other people can be like, wow, you're a great dad. You're a great mom. Now, again, those things in themselves, having children and being married, that's not bad. But is the motive... Look at what I've done. Some of us might have come here for master's or PhD work. That is great. Education is a wonderful thing. But are you doing that so you can have letters in front of your name? If you get more letters, that makes you feel Or are you looking for more zeros behind your name? More paycheck, more finance. Whether there's numbers behind your name or letters in front of your name, does that make you feel like you're more important? What happens when you didn't get that promotion that you thought you had and you had worked down to your nails and you're just trying so hard to move up and, and your boss finally sees you and you get that job and you just feel like you're on top of the world. Well, maybe you just sacrificed 60 hours, 70 hour work weeks to build your name and fame. Not saying it's bad to work hard and to try your best, but the question is, are you trying to make a name for yourself? Are you trying to build your own identity or worth? And guys, I might not have given your example, but all of us are trying to build that identity. Some of us could just be personal image. I got to have the brand clothes. I got to have my shirt the right way, my hat the right way, the shoes the right thing. I got to look this way to seem put together because that's what will give me image, value, or worth. All of us are doing it. The question is, what city, what tower are you building? Because typically that city is going to come crashing down on top of you because none of us know how to build our life perfectly. That's in fact why God's invites us into a relationship. He's the creator, we're the creation. He's got the blueprints. He's got the owner's manual. He knows how the creation should work. Let him build the life for us. So my friends, again, how are you trying to make a name for yourself? What identity are you trying to build everything off of? And if we're really honest, we're tired, aren't we? We're tired of building that image. We're wore out. We're lonely. There's a better way. There's something better that was built for us that we can walk alongside of someone who can show us a better way, give us a better name. That's what, in fact, why God adopts us into his family. He gives us his name, meaning his worth, his righteousness, his love. He gives that to us so we don't have to earn it of ourself. And then God looks at us and calls us good or lovely or worthy or secure because we're in his name. We don't have to build for a name for ourselves. God's already given it to us we place our faith in him. This is what I love about Christianity. It's not an earning, trying, working religion. It's one that God did that for us so that we could walk in the blessing of what he's given. So we're learning two things. They wanted to build a tower and a city to make a name for themselves. That's their core desire. But do you notice that there's a core fear that they have? Do you realize that they also said in this verse, least we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Did you guys recognize that? There is a desire that they have, make a name for myself, fear, 
I don't want to get separated. I want to be with these people. They're my everything. Guys, all of us have some really, really big core fears. Mine is failure. I do not want to fail. If my actions fail, I think that I am a person, am a failure. So if you have that mindset like I do, then what do you, how are you going to treat work? It's going to be a workaholic. You're going to choose work over your family. When your kids want to play. You say, nope, I got to work because I can't fail. I'm going to be super uh, in the weeds of every uh, administrative detail, every financial detail to make sure that whatever's happening doesn't fail, that's overseen, it's cared for. The hardest thing for me is I build towers and cities. I don't build cities, but you, you get what I'm doing here. Because I have fear, lest I be dispersed, that I may be proven as not good enough, that I be not be insignificant, not be laughed at or ridiculed. Guys, how are you operating your life? What are those big fears for you? You know what those fears are when you start getting angry with people? You start getting short, start cutting them off a little bit. Maybe they get near your care or your kid or, you know, whatever the case may be, you get a little edgy, you know what I'm saying, when they start touching whatever the thing is because that thing has become now your security or your comfort or, or it makes you valuable. And guys, I feel this all the time, all the time. Guys, many of you have helped plant this church and it's difficult to start a new church that wants to love our people and love the city. Guys, I feel this rub all the time. I want to build something to make me worthy and valuable, which is sin. But then also I have tons of fears which keep me working because I feel like if I can't just go and take a break, which is like my sabbatical, then what happens if the thing falls apart? Well, number one, I'm not God. And we've got great leaders. But also even me taking a Sabbath rest is a great moment for me to just trust God and say, my worth is not being a pastor. My identity is not being a leader. It's being a beloved son. And I get to go play and pray and hang out with my kids and just be loved by God, not because of what I do or who I am as a title, simply because I have the name of God on me. I'm a beloved son in whom God is well-pleased, not because of what I do, but because of what Christ has done for me. He's taken my sin, he's given me his righteousness, and that's how God sees me. So guys, what are those fears? What are those fears that shows you what you're building? And it shows it's in the idol category. And when you build out of idols, it's going to just crash upon you. And idols are terrible masters. They just keep telling you more, 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 more. Build, 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 build. Get, 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 get. There's never enough money, never enough letters behind your name, never the beautiful wife, house or kids or the most well-behaved whatever, the biggest house, nothing will fix you in creation. And that's what we're seeing from this story. So that's the first part, and we'll speed through the second part. And the Lord said, behold, did I miss a part? I did, verse five. And so the Lord came down in verse five. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. By the way, I just love the ironic nature of this. They're like, let's build a tower higher than anyone had ever seen. And then verse five is like, God had to like come down. Let me see that little tower. What's going on down there? Now God can clearly see everything at any point, any time. But it's just ironic, the language. The guy came down to just show how feeble that is, how worthless it really is to build your entire life around something else to make you valuable or worth it. It's just going to hurt you. So God is coming down to see what they have built. It shows you a perspective here of how high, how holy, how different God is, and really what he has to offer us. Verse six, and the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is the only beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. By the way, this sounds like a pretty good moment, right? Like everyone's unified. Everyone's working on the same page. Why would God want to split that up? Uh, we don't have a lot of time to spend here, but just if you take a moment in your own time, go back to uh, Genesis chapter 10, and you see sort of in the middle of a paragraph, you see this guy named Nimrod which is a great name, Nimrod. He's this, this great mighty warrior. And we're learning that he starts building cities. But what we're learning from him is that he's sort of like a tyrannical like leader. And what I think what's happening is he's forcing his language. He's forcing his culture. So why did everyone have one language, one tongue? Because this joker's building cities. He's this great, mighty warrior leader. And I think he's being oppressive and making people all speak one language. So why do they have all one language? 
Because this guy is only letting him and his own people be in charge. So take your own time to study that, sort of look into what's happening. But we're learning that Nimrod's in charge of what's going on here with Babel and this city. And this is not a good thing that actually they have one language, one tongue. Because in fact, what did God say? Be fruitful, multiply, and what? Fill the earth. And Nimrod's not letting them fill the earth. He's not letting the multiplication of languages and cultures. So that's, again, why we see diversity in that way is a good thing. We want to celebrate and honor and enjoy and learn and know and form around what that looks like. So I think it's interesting. I want you not to see that God like, doesn't hate teamwork. If you're working together, I'm going to split you up. That's like not God's role here. But also what we learn and nothing they propose will now be impossible for them. That's like when a, when a parent like chooses to take away the power tool that the kid got out of the toolbox, like they're going to destroy everything. Like nothing's impossible of how far this destruction can go. Like that's what God's saying. Nothing that they're going to continue their destruction if I don't step in. I've got to step in and help them. So verse seven, God says, come let us. Remember that word us? We looked in Genesis chapter one. God is showing us that he is a triune God. One God, three persons, all equally God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Always eternally existing, all equal. But God is showing us that he's a triune God. One God, equally three persons. Let us come down and confuse their language. So they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from all over the face of the earth. So they left off building the city. Guys, I just want to take a moment to think about that just for a second, that God came down and it looks like he was harming what happened. God came down and confused their plan. But the question is why? He didn't just do it to punish them, but to make a better path for them. And I want you to see in your own life that there's going to be times where you're confused about what God's doing. Why didn't this plan happen? I thought this marriage or this relationship, I'm, I'm confused why we're not together or why didn't I get accepted into this program? Why is it taking so long? Why can't we have kids? Why is it so hard to live in Boston? Why did my finances go down or what's going on? If you're confused about what's happening, it may not be because God's punishing you or disciplining you, but he's doing a course correction. And that's what's happening here is that they didn't want to multiply on the earth. They didn't want to continue to fill the earth with God's glory with the multitude of cultures. So God in that moment did create some confusion of their plans, did create some heartache, but for what reason? For something better. For us to see that God can save every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Then we go to heaven, there's a beautiful tapestry of the length and the height and the depth of how God loves people. In heaven, there's going to be awful and terrible people like me and some great people like you. And you're going to see from every tribe and nation, there's that represented in heaven. And so when you are confused about a plan, something didn't work out, a relationship or job, some program, and you're like, I don't know how I ended up here, how? Or maybe you chose a path of sin and you started hurting your own life or someone else. You're not left alone in that place. You may be confused or broken or heartache, but God may have allowed that to happen to, of course, correct something for your good. Listen, it might feel like discipline, but it's actually a blessing. In fact, Hebrews has a ton to tell us and go through all of it, but has a ton to tell us about this hand of God correcting or discipline. Let me read a few verses and listen into this, okay? Hebrews 12, 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son or daughter whom he receives. Hebrews 12, 10. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Hebrews 12, 11, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. All the Christians say, yes. When God course corrects in my life because I'm going down the wrong path, that's painful. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. Guys, that is a good thing. If you are being course corrected, if you're confused with God's plan, I, I ask you to not be angry, not to shake your fist at God, but to trust that he promises to be good to you, that he's course correcting something and you can trust. Even though it's confusing to you and didn't go with your three to five year plan, 
Trust me, that is all of our life. P.S., my favorite story from Emily and I in this is that we sat down when we were in uh, North Carolina and we're like, oh yeah, we're the kings and queens of our own body. We know how biology works and we know how to plan out kids. So we planned out like four kids and like a, we like wrote the, it was so embarrassing guys. We wrote out exactly when we'd have kids. Like, you know, the, how the whole, like you've got to conceive and then, you know, a couple months later you have some kids. You what? Hope, we're hopeful, hopeful. And we're like, oh yeah, we need like a three or four, you know, we, we have the thing mapped out and God just like, you know, kind of blew up the entire plan. If you know our story, we can't have biological kids. It's just a great moment where the guy's like, let me just, we're going a different direction. Not that he was punishing us for writing that down, but just he had so much better plans. He had Kiana, he had Chisera, he had the city for us to move to. He had a whole better plan. He confused, there was lots of pain and heartache with that whole thing with so much heartache. But he course corrected for something better for us. That's what he's doing. He's not hurting the people at Babel. He's making something better. Same thing for you. God's going to sometimes destroy what you're building to build something better for you. The foundation's weak. The pillars are going to cave in. So he's going to crush it before it crushes you. Does that make sense? Some of us, you, you've known that feeling. You've had that breakup where you're like, I thought that was the one. It didn't work. What was God doing? Some of you look back and go, oh, I know what he was doing. I was cray cray then and he fixed that whole thing. I, I get that. And some of you right now may feel like you're trying to hold the walls up of your house and things are shaking and it's coming down on you. You're like, I don't know where to think next. He's got you. You don't have to hold the pillars of your house. He will sustain you. He will love you right where you're at. No matter what you're facing, no matter what you're going through, he sees where you're at. He's got the home. He'll tear down what's going to harm you. He'll build up what's right. And this is the beauty of what we see in Christmas. Jesus comes to tear down the wall of sin, the city of sin, the tower of sin we've built against God. He tears it down. And in his own body, we learn from Ephesians. Remember, in him, we become now this new family. He tears down the wall of hostility. And then now in him, there's this bridge to God. That's what you and I are now on. We are in this bridge between you and God because of what Christ has done. This is what we celebrate about Jesus. Tears down what's hurting us, building up in him what's right. Guys, let's take a moment to pray together. 